You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hello, it's episode 77 of Grow Yourself Up. It's December in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, it's December everywhere, actually, but it's winter. Well, is it the beginning of winter now or is it autumn? I think it's I think it's the last month of autumn, but um, I think I've got a bit of a cold and I'm feeling very tired as I record this. And I'm wondering how you are. It's that kind of end of year feeling. Um, but I'm really, really delighted to share this episode with you. And um, I'm really excited to share it with you before the Christmas holidays because there's so much calm and wisdom um, coming from our guest. So my episode this week is with Stephen Terrell. Um, I've done an amazing training with Steve on developmental trauma, and he's a leading expert in the field of developmental trauma and adoption. And he's recognized around the world for his work in developmental trauma and healing. He understands developmental trauma from the inside out and the outside in. He's performed more than 25,000 individual transforming touch sessions. That's um, the training that I've done and taught thousands of students from around the world in the art of transforming touch as it relates to healing developmental trauma. Now, he's ex- he's got extensive credentials, which I'll tell you more about. He's very accomplished and he's well known. Um, but the actual main reason I asked him to come on to grow yourself up is because, because of his humility, his kindness, his generosity of spirit, and his deep honoring of the human experience. Um. I feel a lot more peaceful in myself, less self-critical, and my resilience has increased since um, training with him. And I wanted to share his wisdom, humanity, humili- humility, and generosity um, ahead of the Christmas period because something he shares with me at the end felt so grounding and so helpful. And I think that many of us parents could do this with this before the Christmas holidays. I really hope this episode helps all of you who are breaking cycles of pain and dysfunction in your family. And I hope it helps you be gentle with yourselves as you do this brave work. Um, there's a bit where I ask, I, I sort of share something about one of my daughters and um, eating towards the end. And I think I've shared on this podcast before that um, my I've got twin girls. Um, they were premature. They were about 
uh, five weeks premature and um, really tiny when they were born, like um, two kilograms each, so four pounds each, so like really, really many. And um, I always have had something about food with them, um, and I, I think it relates to something because of I had a brother who died when I was three, and he was a baby, and so um, somehow I have a lot of... Um, like I want them to be well and alive, basically. And so food somehow feeds into that. And you can hear, as I talk to him, you can hear some of the anxiety of what I share. And his response was so calming and so kind. Um, and I hope you really get a lot out of this episode. So let me just tell you a bit more about Steve. It was his experience as a clinician and single parent of two adopted sons, along with his understanding of the ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood event study, that Steve came to the realization that there needed to be a way to reach nonverbal or early developmental trauma without spoken language. Out of this realization, he developed Transforming Touch and a training program designed for understanding and healing developmental trauma, which is called Transforming the Experience-Based Brain, a regulation-based approach to working developmental trauma. Transforming the Experience-Based Brain, the training program is offered across the U.S. and internationally. And um, students come to learn about developmental trauma through a new lens. This new lens includes working with primitive reflexes, learning the language of early trauma, working with physio physiological regulation, understanding the neurosequential development of the brain, working with survival parts, understanding attachment and the somatic relationship and more. Terrell is also the co-developer of another developmental tra uh, trauma training program with Kathy Kane, Somatic Resilience and Regulation. And this training program is a combination of both of their years of experience as clinicians in the field of developmental trauma. This really popular program, which um, runs with waiting lists, um, has been highly successful and has led to the writing of their book, Nurturing Resilience, Helping Clients Move Forward from Developmental Trauma. Terrell's background and training began with, began with a Rogerian approach, which involves active listening skills. He continues to incorporate this approach in his work, in addition to his training in somatic experiencing, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, touch training for therapists, didactic developmental psychotherapy, and EMDR for adopted children. Terrell combines all his training to see the client holistically, mind, body, psychologically, and spiritually. And in addition to being a healer, teacher, and author, Steve sees clients at the Austin Attachment and Counseling Center in Austin, Texas. He, he founded the center over 20 years ago for the treatment of developmental trauma and adoption-related issues. He sees clients under his license as a professional counselor in Texas, and his license was granted after receiving his master's degree in counseling from Texas A&M University. And he has a PhD, a doctorate in psychology from the California Coast University. Um, okay. So, um, all those details, um, are, well, actually, I had to shorten the show notes because there's a limitation on that. So there's most of that detail. The, the main bits are in the show notes. And, um, you can find Steve on Instagram at Stephen Terrell. That's his, his handle. And you can find him on his website. Those, those, um, details will be in the show notes. So let's get stuck in. I hope that you um, gain from this episode. Sending you lots of love and really go gently. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm really delighted that you um, are taking the time to be here with us. And um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your path to parenthood, about your children. Um, yeah, to sort of draw us a picture. 
My path to parenthood was not a normal path. My path to parenthood was, if I believe, and I do believe in God, but if I believe, then it was all about that. I had been working in child protective services, which with children that are in foster care. And I had been doing that for a while, and I had a little Volkswagen bug, and I drove around to different cities, probably about a 150-mile radius. I would go to group homes and work with foster kids in their present home. And then in my office, I saw the ones local would be brought in. So I was in a foster home, and there were some kids, and nobody wanted to adopt them. And just so happened, the caseworker showed up while I was there. I think that was the only time to this point that ever happened in my life, but she showed up and she said, I just can't find anybody who wants this sibling group. And I said, well, I would take if I could adopt. And she said, you can't adopt. I said, but I'm single. And she said, you can't adopt. I said, we're in Texas. You can't adopt. And I said, okay, let me start the process. So I was motivated to go to the training. I was and part of the training is you have to have your house inspected by the fire department. So the fire department, the day they were scheduled to come out, my toilet exploded. And so this is a sign that something's not right here. So I canceled the inspection. And then I decided I should just buy a condo and stop renting. I was in a duplex. And so I was going to buy a condo. And I said, I'm not going to do anything. I told the Child Protective Services until... I'm settled in a condo and I find the, the right one. In the meantime, the sibling group got adopted by some people in Ohio and it went away. They disappeared. Oh, wow. So I'm like not as motivated at this moment. But in September, I had a dream. And in this dream, this little boy showed up and I said, What is your name? He said, My name is Luke. And I went, Oh. And he, I thought, can remember it like it was live and happening. And then the first, on October 31st, right around and then, I, I closed on my condo. And I moved into the condo. And within a few days, I got like six different calls from six different people in the city saying, there's a little baby boy who would be perfect for you. He's considered unadoptable. He's probably deaf. He probably has multiple physical issues, but we think you'd be the perfect one. And I was like, oh, okay. And so he was Luke. And wow. by Christmas, the adoption was done. And uh, he was in a group home. I went and met him at like 6 o'clock in the morning. This group home really didn't want him to be adopted. They really did care about him. He was the youngest person in the group home. So he was great for marketing, as sad as that is. But that's kind of the purpose. He was there for them. But uh, he came up right after Christmas, the day after I picked him up. And uh, we went to lunch. How old was he then? That's amazing. 15 months, right at 14, 15 months, right about there. So he was, he, I picked him up, he left with me. He didn't cry a drop. I mean, nothing. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I would think there'd be some emotion because he'd been there most of his life. But uh, there have been several uh, negative attempts, parental error in his life, to say the least. 
And so he came home. I didn't have any baby furniture, nothing. As soon as I knew he was coming, I went garage sailing and bought baby stuff just so I'd have a bed. From that was that was the beginning of the spin. I went to an attachment conference because I thought he cries, and I don't know why he's crying. He cried a lot, and so through that process, I ended up going to an attached conference in South Carolina. Met Dan Hughes and some other people that work with attachment, and really got more information. Backing that up, I was a registered play therapist. I was a licensed counselor. I had all of these criteria, and I've been working with kids for a long time. So what was the issue? Why was I, of all people, having problems? I'm supposed to be the person who knows the answers. You know, I've given out so many answers that were probably wrong before this moment. But they came. It was a hard moment to to go, you know what, Steve, you don't know what the heck you're doing. You need to figure out what you're doing here and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. I never planned on having children. I didn't think it was possible. Why hadn't you? Never. Maybe when I was younger, I thought about it when my nieces and nephews were born and I was real close to them. I thought, oh, it'd be cool to have a child. But I, I wasn't in my bucket list to be a parent. And so <clears throat> I came out of a, uh, just, I'm on the spectrum. I'm neurodiversity. I'm, you know, if there's anything, there's everything. Um, I came out of a pretty insane household, um, moved every three to six months, went to probably 15, 12, 15 different elementary schools, um, was considered um, uneducable, if that's a word. Um, yeah, they that they couldn't educate you. Right. A lot of abuse, um, physical, mental, sexual, every kind of abuse in the world growing up. Ended up... So sorry. There was a girl named Leslie who lived next door to me in Columbus, Georgia. I don't know where she is today. But we were in seventh grade, and she wouldn't walk to school or come home with me because I was the weird kid, so I walked by myself. But she told me one day, because she would play with me, you know, we would play together yeah. at home, and it was all right, but at school she wouldn't. And I said, why don't you talk to me at school? And she said, your tongue is always hanging out. So she's the person who taught me how to put my tongue in my mouth. Not a therapist, not anyone. Later I found out that there were multiple doctors, multiple doctors saying that I wouldn't live. So my parents didn't invest a whole lot in me because everybody thought I was going to die. Why? Well, that you wouldn't live? Well, I was born a little early. I was. They thought I was dead at birth. They kind of threw me on a table and literally was going to the morgue, and a nurse realized I was breathing. Wow. Made a movement. So, I mean, there were those things, but they just, it was in the... 50s, they didn't know, they didn't have machinery, and this was what they decided. So I didn't walk till I was almost five. Actually, somebody prayed over me, and uh, I stood up and walked, supposedly was the story. I don't remember anything, but I can still taste dust. So I know it was a tent revival, and evidently they lay you on the ground in the dirt. And I don't know what they did, but it worked, because I started walking. So 
all of this, when I got into high school, I wanted to go to college. I applied for scholarships because we didn't have any money uh, for college. And my parents, no one in my family had ever graduated from high school. No one in my family had ever been to college. So that they didn't support it. They didn't know how to support it, or they didn't want to find out how. It's kind of like they were living a different life than I was. So a psychologist came out. Well, I had to go see a psychologist. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Can I interrupt you? How did you even, I mean, that thing about, um, I'm sure they didn't say to you, you're uneducable, but there would have been, that would have been in the, in the atmosphere around you. How did you try to get a hold of enough kind of of your own power to get yourself through high school, to get yourself to college and university and to, I mean, you're highly qualified with multiple trainings. You've got a PhD. How did you kind of get a hold of that? When I was in high school and they tested me, a psychologist tested me to see if I was college worthy. And he said I wasn't. He said I would never make it in college. So that started a huge amount of depression. I wanted to die. I didn't want to live. I wanted to die. I was like, I'm just useless. Nobody will ever love me. Nobody will ever like me. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be smart enough. I'm never going to be pretty enough. I'm never going to be, you know, just down this long list of what I was never going to do. So I started off, every time I would go to college, I'd say, oh, I'm smarter than he is. I would flunk out. So I flunked out of college over and over and over and over before I finally figured out, oh, if I only study for the test, instead of worrying about the bigger picture, I really brought it down to one test at a time. And I just took one class and I passed one class and then I, I passed another. And then I realized how to do it. And once I re- realized how to do it, I'd read books five or six times, but I've, I've to get it. And once I figured out how I, my learning was different than someone else's, but it didn't make it horrible. I kind of figured it out. So that kind of led me to getting a, getting my bachelor's degree and getting my graduate degree, my master's right after I got my bachelor's. And then I got my uh, PsyD, my doctorate in psychology after Luke had come to live with me. He would sit at, we would sit in the kitchen where my computer was and he'd play on the floor while I was studying and doing stuff. And he just kind of motivated me that I could do it. And I've done it all one class at a time, one test at a time, not even a class. Preparing for a test, I can do it really well. The day after, I may not remember, but that day I can pass it. And when, you know, when you take boards, there's a lot you have to do to get your license. You have to pass boards. And so I went to a silent retreat center and stayed for a week and studied by myself in the quiet and passed my exams and went into private practice, started seeing foster kids almost, well, seeing adults. And then I thought I would never see a child. I had no intention to even see a child, but the income system in the state of Texas ran out of money, but they had money for Medicaid, which is kids that are in foster care. So I was able to see foster care kids and that's how I stayed alive. And then it just, the door was open. Yeah, And so I stumbled through it, and I stumbled and stumbled and stumbled figuring out there are, first of all, there's millions of dollars every year on parenting books. 
there you go to that part of the bookstore at Barnes and Noble, wherever you go, go to Amazon, I don't care. Walls of books on parenting. None of them work, in my opinion. There are a lot of good ideas, a lot of really good ideas, but they didn't work for me. They didn't give me any sense of hope and no sense of clarification. And every time I would try these techniques, they would fall flat. Even a program that I had participated in and written part of it prior to Luke coming crap. That's all I have to say. There's there's so many uh, well-beings out there that really want to do good. I hate to use finger quotes, but do good. And through Luke and then John Michael, who came later, I finally figured out that if we could just get some regulation on board. Can I just, can I pause you for one second? I really want to kind of, um, like emphasize this point because, um, part of the reason that this podcast even exists was that when I was reading parenting books, because I had also trained before I had children and, um, I knew all about attachment and about child development and that I needed to be a certain way to, to kind of offer them what they needed, my children. But nowhere in the books did they say, oh, by the way, this is going to be really, really hard or um, anything about you won't be able to do this 100% of the time. And if you've had any trauma in your background, the transition to parenting is going to be way, way, way harder. And your implicit memories are going to be like blasted in front of you every second of every day. And so um, I love what you just said, because not, there's not enough um, giving us hope and giving us like because the, the very people who want to do it differently are the very people who are the least likely to be able to do that. Yes. And um, there's so much pain, I think, because we don't acknowledge that enough. Horrible pain. And it was horrible pain. The only book that ever came close to that was Parenting from the Inside Out. Yes. And he kind of breaks it down. I was like, tell us more. Yes, yes, yes. I was too. I probably have sold more of his books than he has because I <laughs> I have referred everybody I see to that book because that's the only book that gave me any sliver of hope and then figuring out regulation. And once I figured out, oh, if I just focus on regulation and I don't worry about anything else, I'm just going to, and I figure out how to be present. I had never been to a theme park. My parents never took me anywhere. I'd never been on vacation other than to go see my grandparents. I mean, that was the only vacation we ever had. And so, and I'd never eaten inside a restaurant. Wow. When I left home, I had no experience with. So jump ahead and all of a sudden, how do you have fun with a kid? How do you have fun with a kid? And so we went and I was like, oh, this is horrible. Oh, why am I here? Why are we here? I don't like all the people. I don't like riding these rides. I don't like any of it. <clears throat> so once I got better, he got better <laughs> because once I realized that, oh, I'm doing this for him, with him, and for me, this is my chance to be a kid too. So why don't I just figure out how to have fun? And that's kind of what I did, Kath. I just kind of went, whoa, pull back. And let's go for this whole idea that fun. And then all of a sudden I had to figure out what does fun mean? I had not been, you know, to parties. I'd never been invited to weddings. I had never, I didn't really have 
a lot of close friends. I mean, there was a lot happening in this development process. So here I am with this child. I don't want him to be isolated. I want him to be out and about. So we found a church, and we kind of went to church, and then we had to find another church and another church because kept running into situations where um, there's a lot of people that want to parent, a lot of people who want to tell, wanted to tell me how to parent, and a lot of people who wanted to be my child's mother. I was like, mm, no, mm, no, no. You know, meeting me at church is not a reason for you to come up and tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I got a lot of people telling me what I was doing wrong, but I never got anybody telling me anything that I was doing right except my sister, who said, you should never adopt. Why are you adopting? You know we came out of this crazy way. I've had trouble with my kids. Why are you doing this? And I'm like, oh. But then she said, when Luke would get upset, we'd be in the car going down the road, and he'd start crying for no reason whatsoever. I'd pull the car to the side of the road, Get out, go around, I'd get him out of the back seat, out of his car seat, screaming at the top of his lungs. And I would just hold him and we'd walk down the side of the road. Sometimes it'd be a mile. Sometimes it'd be 20 feet. Never any clarity of how long it was going to take. And he'd calm down. And I would just whisper, kind of like, you know, I'm right here with you, Luke. I'm right here. Daddy's right here. I'm not somewhere else. Words I had never heard in my life, and I don't know where they came from. But, you know, Kath, just holding him was enough. Yeah. I didn't have to be a brilliant parent and say, oh, well, the consequences to crying are that you're not going to get ice cream later, and maybe you won't get to get dessert tonight at dinner. Nah, 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 nah. I never parented that way, and I never will. I never used food with my kids. I never used anything. I just would hold them. Or I would have them, and they got bigger. They would sit next to me. I said, you know, it looks like you just need to be by me. Come sit next to me. And they'd sit next to me on the sofa. I don't believe in time out. I don't believe that we should separate children from us. I think our children should be with us. If a baby cries, pick the baby up. This business of closed doors, leave the door open. The baby will get used to sound. Baby can sleep. It doesn't matter. That baby's been in you. And, you know, that baby's used to noise. Little noise is not going to hurt a baby. You know, it's, walking on toes does not await a baby, parent a baby. <laughs> and, and all of these things you're saying are, are everything for the child. And when we haven't had that ourselves, it can feel sometimes impossible to give, or we can feel completely suffocated, suffocated by that. Or like we are ourselves going to drown or die. Um, and I think that really there's so much comforting. Like how did you comfort yourself through this? Because it sounds like you really got a hold of yourself to kind of, I mean, as I listened to your story, that story about how you, you figured out, I'm just going to get through one test. And then you figured out if we can get some regulation on board and I just will hold them. But surely there must have been emotional pain for you with that. How did you like reparent yourself or, or self-mother yourself through that? Well, I did a lot of therapy younger on. I was crazy suicidal nuts when I was younger. So I did a lot of therapy then. Didn't do a whole lot. Uh, when I was in SE training, I met Kathy Kane, and then I started seeing her as a client. 
later we wrote Nurturing Resilience together, but she she kind of touched into it physically, touched me, and it was overwhelming, to say the least. Started the process, finally found a place. Uh, Thomas Keating uh, was a was a was a Catholic uh, priest, and he started a program called Centering Prayer, where you just sit quietly for twenty minutes every day. And I did that for twenty minutes every day, every day, every day, just really working on my own regulation, doing things like that. Um, Started playing golf with Luke. That helped. I learned to snow ski with Luke and John Michael later with John Michael. And then John Michael broke his legs. We never went back skiing. That was kind of it when he was about eight or nine. That was like, okay, I'm going to kill my kids. We're not going skiing. <laughs> learned how to go to SeaWorld and see that if we could watch the shows, it made it easier for me to be around people which made it easier for me to have fun. And so I kind of went through this process of just going, I don't want to do that, you know, but it was, it amazed me because I was lucky enough to have Luke first, who was a bit of a handful, and John Michael second, and John Michael was another unadoptable. Somebody says, oh, I have a kid you need to adopt. I said, I'm not having another one. Yes, come meet him. I went, okay. So... Luke and I went to meet him, and we left there, and I said, oh, no way. And Luke said, yes, he's going to be my brother. And I was like, no, he's not. I'm, oh, no. Went back a second time, saw him in his natural habitat, which was in the foster home he was in. Met his foster parents, and I went, oh, this baby's coming to me, and got a call about three days later that they were so sick of him. They would meet me on a street corner, and I met them literally on a street corner, and they gave me a bag of clothes and him, and it weren't, they weren't his clothes. <gasps> so he didn't have any clothes except what was on his back, and he was two. And so we went, bought him clothes, and he's the most loving child, and he's been, you know, he's had his issues, believe me, but more easier to be with them and much more easier to experience him. Because Luke taught me so much and calmed my nerves down. And as I stay regulated, Chuck, I can I can hear anything. I can hear anything. And you know, today, you know, I went nuts being a perfectionist. I will tell you, uh, you know, Luke was in college and Luke was, you know, it was a struggle, but he Changed majors a couple of times, but he's still in college and he has three hours to go, which is one class, one semester to graduate with his degree. And then decided to go to the police academy. So he graduates from the police academy in December and will be a police officer in San Antonio. And I'm extremely proud of him, but I really had to work over that disappointment. That was a huge disappointment. He says he's going to go back into the class. And I used to really want to invest in that. And then I figured out I need to pull back, pull back, let him figure out what he's going to do. And my other son works construction and still lives at home and uh, is amazing. He went to college and flunked out, and that was a good thing for him. It was, you know, he was a pandemic graduate from high school and horrible. Oh, that's so All those kids, so 
Maybe someday he'll go to college. It's there if he wants. And if it doesn't, that's all right, too. So he's a good kid. Both of them, you know, the older one has a girlfriend, seems to be real happy. The younger one has a lot of friends and seems to be happy. And uh, it's interesting being a single parent, and I really put a lot into expectation. And like holidays, I was like, oh, I want to spend every moment with you. Because when they were little, we traveled and went skiing and did stuff on holidays. Now we don't so much. They want to be with their friends right after, you know, they're there for part of it. But that took me a while to figure out how to create a life for me. You know, I was just booking a reservation to New Orleans over New Year's. I go by myself, you know. They will be going to their stuff, doing whatever they do. Well, Luke will be working, but John Michael, he may be working too. We don't know, but I'm escaping on both on New Year's this year and figuring out how to do things. It's, at this point in my life, I'm having to relearn how to be me as the parent me, the, you know, the teacher me that does transforming touch. For teaching practitioners, it was horrible. That was a whole huge step, too. So the paradigm... Tell me about that. Well, there's no way. You now do the teaching with Kathy Kane as well. Yeah. And that it was so life-changing for you. And um, and I am doing that as well, and it is life-changing for my clients. Um, and I, I think that I love what you say about specifically about transforming touch, that we're getting regulation from the bottom up. So it's right brain to right brain from the bottom up because, I mean, I know if I speak by myself, I have parented myself from my left brain. My left brain is my respite from everything. I go there to soothe myself, basically. And um, in parenthood, I've had to really, what they want is my presence. They don't want my intellect, basically. But actually tolerating my own presence and being with, like what you said about the um, the, the theme parks, um, I find some stuff in parenting really challenging because I've had twins and for multiple different reasons. And stuff that other people appear to find really easy, I massively struggle with. Um, and so I've had to just extend my window of tolerance like, you know, but you know that term from Gestalt therapy called safe emergencies by doing things just on the margin, you know? Um, but and lots of the listeners will also do that. But how how do you kind of still continue to do that? Because it's a tremendous achievement, as I listen to you, to have adopted two sons with what must have been held in your body from your childhood, and to have kind of had mastery of yourself enough. And I mean, the language around adopted children—it's terrible that someone would describe them as unadoptable. That actually breaks my heart in half. But um, to to kind of have children who had clearly had so many of their own issues as well. Like what a tremendous um, kind of like love story, actually. It has been. And with Luke, I was told he was deaf. I had to learn sign language before I adopted him. It turned out that they were giving him a heavy amount of medication to keep him quiet. And nobody knew it. Oh, my word. And I thought it was part of his medical stuff. So I was continuing what they had started, and then when I went, wait, this this kid isn't talking, nothing is right, and I got rid of the medication that they had him on, he started talking, and he hasn't shut up since. I mean, bring up history of anywhere in the world, especially the Roman history, or bring up, you know, he knows it, and he will tell you 
explicit details. Um, and also, uh, just he talks all the time, and he hears fine, and you would never know that he was this kid who didn't talk. Yeah, and he was never dead. Yeah, so there's there's hope there. There's hope. And I don't think I was given hope. And, you know, I remember somebody said to me, some woman at church said, well, if God would have meant men to have babies, they would have given you a uterus. <gasps> oh, wow. And I was like, what did you just say to me? And it was like, oh, right in the heart. Just knocked me off my feet for a moment. And I just left and cried. Cried a lot trying to figure this out got mad a lot at myself um tried not to get angry with my kids i did of course i have i've gotten angry with them it's not the direction i prefer child but i have it took me a while to figure this out so now i'm just figuring out how to live as a single parent with adult children and there's no book on that either dang it so <laughs> Here I am, and I'm doing the best I can. And my kids both say I love you every time we speak. They both, every time they write, I love you. Every time they text, I love you. And it took me a long time to realize they do love me. Because I thought I was unlovable. So a little many things, I had to clear my history for their history to happen. And I didn't want to be anything like how I grew up. So I've lived in this house, lived in a condo till Luke was three or four. And there was someone at four. And there was someone outside our window cussing up a storm. And I went, I'm done with condo living, bought this house, and have lived here 20, 21 years in this house. Long as I ever lived anywhere in my life. For sure, is this house, and uh, it's their home. And they don't want me to move. They don't want me to sell it. They want me to live here forever so that they'll move into here one day is how they talk about this house. So hope they wait till I'm dead. But <laughs> <laughs> It might be nice having some multi-generational living. <laughs> you could help with the grandchildren. That's true. I hope, I, I hope someday to have grandchildren, not today. But someday, yes. Yes, but I don't know if there's a book for that, Kath, because I think I'm going to spoil grandkids rotten. Yes. Yeah, because I, I did a pretty good job with my two, so I might as well, you know, get the next generation too and just really show up with that ability to spoil. Uh, Steve, I want to hear more about you because I think that some of the things that you're talking about, you are making them sound very easy, and I know that they're not. So some of those things where, say, you learn to tolerate certain outings, basically where you are widening your window of tolerance, even for when you taught yourself to be present. How did you, you mentioned that you had some therapy, but some of the therapy wasn't very helpful. Um, was the turning point some of the, the touch work with, with Kathy? Tell, and then how did you kind of, because there's a process of really developing into our own best friends so we can be really compassionate with ourselves and kind of push ourselves to kind of go, yes, we can do this because this is how we want to, like, this is what I want to embody. But how did you do that for yourself? Like, tell us some more detail. Well, Kathy just threw me. You just threw something out there and I went, how did that land? Be our own best friend. Oh, dear. Yeah. I don't know if I'm there yet. 
I think that that's where I'd like to be. And maybe this year I'm closer than ever, but I'm still my worst enemy. I still can negative talk. With both. Yes. At the same time. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I, one of those people says it's okay to talk to yourself as long as you don't say, huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> the, then you're in trouble. But, uh, yeah, it, there was not an easy moment. I, it was really with people. I still have trouble with people. I travel a lot. I don't really, I stay in a hotel. I stay, I bring my people with me when I travel so that it makes it easier. When I started teaching, I thought, why would anybody want to learn? I, I thought everyone in the room knew more than I did. So I started off teaching horribly, just like parenting, horribly, teaching horribly in the beginning, trying to figure out how to accept the fact that maybe I know something that somebody else might not be aware of, that, and it just didn't work, didn't work, until I figured out I am sharing an organic feature of life that we should all have available to us. I'm still not the smartest. I always say, oh, if you want to really know the physiology, go see Kathy Kane. She her classes, she'll teach you that. I really come in to teach this, 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 but it's really about the practice of regulation. Coming in to understand how to connect with a client and mine in the beginning were my own children. Still we could be in the middle of the grocery store. Dude, I have a headache. And my old my younger son is as tall as I am, but bigger. And he said, Dad, I have a headache. Put your hand on my head. So right in the middle of the store, I'm standing there with my hand on his head. And the pain goes away, and we go ahead and shop. So they are very used to touch. And touch is such a miracle that I believe when we allow people to touch us. And it's funny. When in trainings, people will say, oh, get on the table. We'll practice on you. Students will say that. Never would I get on the table. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go to that table. Because... I don't know what it would happen if I got on the table. So I'm still a bit shy and I'm definitely shame around the healing process, but seeing the shame, embracing the shame and saying, oh, you're here to protect me from making a fool of myself. And maybe everyone doesn't need to see me bounce clear off the table or flip over or do whatever happens. And maybe it's a good thing that when I'm teaching, I'm really kind of just sharing stories and sharing experiences. Yeah. I can do that all day, Kath, but the mechanics of it all, I have to really think. And being in your, like being in your adult, because I, I love what you say about shame. I am, I always want to get rid of my shame and kind of excavate it and not let it keep on whispering that thing about uh, you don't know enough you're not good enough, you're not lovable, all of that. So I want to kind of get rid of that and I sort of have to talk myself through that. But so the way you've just framed it is so loving to actually turn to the shame and say thank you. Yeah, yeah, whatever I resist gets bigger. Then I learned less is more and what I resist gets bigger. Those are two huge lessons for me. Don't resist anything that comes towards you, including me, people at church. Don't resist it. And 
little pieces at a time. Yeah. You know, study for the test, not the course. And understanding that if I study for the test, I could pass the course. With parenting, if I could, I don't worry about my kids are not in the room with me right now. I'm not worried about how I'm going to parent when they show up. I'm going to see who shows up. Yeah. And them. And, you know, my younger son comes in, he'll work eight to 10, 12 hours a day. And he comes in and he's covered in mud and stinks to high heaven. And he sits down in a chair and I'm in the other chair. I pause whatever I'm watching or turn it off. And he just wants to tell me about his day. He wants to be seen. Being able to take that in. Yeah. Yeah. That's more important than me knowing how exactly the brain, you know, or polyvagal or whatever doesn't. I realize that none of that's important. What's important is me being able to sit and listen. And I think what you just said about, um, like not applying the, that logic of I'm just going to do the test and I'm going to focus on right now because I notice with me, and with, with my clients as well, but specifically with, if I talk about my own story, when I get stressed about something, so one of my children has a fear paralysis reflex and can get very anxious about things, and it plays out in certain different ways. And then I catastrophize. So I'm like, she actually doesn't like being surveilled now when she's eating. Not that we are surveilling her, but if if I get so, so if I start to get stressed about like, why are you not eating or what's going on? Can you like, can you move it along? then it worsens the situation. And it's because I've projected so far into the future that this is all disastrous, I'm terrible, she's going to have an eating disorder or whatever I'm projecting. And then I'm in like a massive panic about something. Whereas if I just, I know actually energetically, the moment I let something go and stop trying to control um, or just like notice what she's doing, there's so much more ease, but my own stuff blocks that. So I have to really be present with it. So so what you just said about focusing on the test is just kind of like, because I observed my husband actually as well yesterday, we were both getting flustered about something in his face. I could see the bottom half of his face went very set. And I was like, my God, we're both transmitting so many danger signals to the environment. No wonder what's going to play out is going to play out. And so, yes, I'm in an ongoing journey of mastery of self. I have not thought of it that way. For me, I don't, I don't think about it. It's kind of like, oh, for me, you know, well, the big lesson was learning that when you just sit down and you get quiet and you don't try to entertain anybody and you're not there trying to redesign the rest of the world, it gives you that moment. And in that moment, that may be all you have. And then in the next moment, they might go off the deep end and behavior. But if you understand that that moment grows in time to two moments, to three moments, and then the moments become a minute, and the minutes become hours, and the hours become days, and the days become weeks, weeks become months, that's how the relationship evolves. And if we just don't worry about the bigger picture, we're just looking at, oh, if I can get a moment, where my child connects to me and I connect to my child, it's healing. That's the work. When I figured out, when I got caught in a snowstorm and I couldn't come home, in the past, I'd have been nuts. 
the most recent one, I was able to say, okay, I'll just go to a hotel. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. In three days, I figured out, oh, I'll go home on another airline and went to a different airport, called another airline and went home. Never got anxious. Never felt like anyone owed me something. Never blamed anyone. Just kind of went to that place of, oh, and then I realized this is from all the work that I'm doing with clients. We heal every time we touch someone. It is impossible for us as practitioners, clinicians, whatever we call ourselves, to touch someone. And through that relationship of touch, both parties, therapists, whatever they are, client, everybody's coming together for this healing. And it kind of like, you know, we come in close, then we kind of split apart and we begin to individualize, and all of that happens in front of our eyes. And how grateful I am to witness people healing. I'll thank God. I say it every day, many times a day. This healing business is for real. And parents, you know, they say, well, there's no parent, there's no manual when you get a baby. Well, there's no two babies alike. So, Oh, what manual you're going to get, an individualized one. And the only manual you need is to learn how to breathe and sit and be in the moment. Those things just quiet down little pieces. It's so, I noticed my own energy as I was explaining my story to you and then how your energy was so calming. And so um, when you said that you go from one second to one interaction to one minute to two minutes, and that's that's like such a beautiful thing that you just shared with us because you're so right, and yet so many of us are so um, it's so hard to do that, and it's so calming even just to kind of play that over to myself to think, yeah, I'm doing enough. I'm already doing enough. We're all already doing enough, actually. Yeah. And it might actually be about doing less. Yeah, we are enough, aren't we, Kath? Steve, I'm just conscious of the time. And I wondered if you wanted to offer any last words about um, growing yourself up, being kind to yourself, how you soothe yourself when you have been your own worst enemy, anything that feels kind of relevant. Well, things that I've figured out and have learned about is take your shoes off and your socks and go walk on wet grass in the morning. And if you can be up early enough to be there when the sun rises, it's even more powerful. Take walks in the forest, wear shoes there, but take walks where there's trees, go to the park, go to the dog park. You know, those kind of things still help me tremendously. I like to have a cup of coffee on the patio in the morning and see what the squirrels are doing, you know, kind of just not a whole lot on my agenda when I start my day. I think that those things, swimming, any kind of exercise, walking, is going to allow the parent to allow a person to find more regulation in their cells. Um, I was talking to a practitioner in New York this morning on a call, and she was talking about working with pregnant moms and babies are being born less anxious. Is that just happening, or is it because of the transforming touch that she's using? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. They're just being born less restless that she's working with. So there's if you can go and get some regulation work, go get it. If you can't get any, 
Centering prayer, Thomas Keating, though it's a wonderful thing to start in his heart, start with five minutes of sitting quietly because 20 takes a while to get to. And figure out what fun means. You know, what does fun mean? Is it just about laughing? No. It's a bigger concept that I'm still discovering. I'll probably never have all the answers, but I have enough to get through today. Thank you. That's been so lovely and um, so full of wisdom and so uh, holding. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kath. I appreciate you. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. And um, just to be f- for everyone, um, all the details of Steve's book, which is a wonderful book called Nurturing Resilience, which he wrote with Kathy Kane, that's in the show notes, and all of his programs and how you can interact with him. He is on Instagram as well, um, at Stephen Terrell, and that will be also in the um, show notes. Perfect. Is there anything else you want to say about your programs? Uh, no. Uh, I, you know, looking at, we're probably going to do a, a mini program for parents, just teaching them about regulation and touch without all the other fanfare, not going in anything, just a brief program. That's going to probably be in 2024. 20, It'll start like where they'll meet a few times and have someone just to talk to more of a group and learning um, seven point touch, the protocol to where they can do it with their own kids. So that's not yet on my website, but it is Austin attached. So I would love to see people, more people in class, but I also, if you just heard something in here that helps you, that's great too. Either way. But also, the details for austinattached.com will be in the show notes as well. Excellent. Thank you. Much gracious. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.